You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. My name is Rebecca. I'm going to welcome you to read um, scripture with us this morning. We are in Galatians chapter 5, working our way right through it. And we're going to go ahead and read 1, which is what we finished with last week, and then read through 12. So I'll give you a minute to find that, and then I'm going to ask you to please stand in reverence for God's word. All right, here we go. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have no conf- I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This ends our reading. Thank you. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. We're talking about serious subjects today, aren't we? We're talking about gospel subjects today. Paul doesn't say this to be edgy. Paul says this because the truths of the gospel matter. I know it's awkward to hear that. It's awkward to read it. It's awkward to have to talk about it up here, guys. But... (laughs) While I'm not going to get into depth on what that means, there are children present. I will say this, Paul uses strong language here because the gospel cannot be lost. And adding things or subtracting things from the gospel make it no gospel at all. This morning, we're going to be looking, the the sermon title is The Truth Prevails. We're going to look at how truth and lies affect us, how lies can lead us astray from the gospel, and how we are to pursue truth and run according to truth. Lies are deceptive. And I'm going to start here. I don't want to use a out there perspective here. I want us to be thinking about ourselves today. So I'll be honest with you and raw with you. When we think about truth and lies, oftentimes we look out there and think, oh, that person over there is believing a lie about this. But the Bible calls us to look here first, take the log out of our own eye before we try to take the twig out of somebody else's. And so often we can believe lies about ourselves 
that lead us to self-destruction because lies never help us. Lies and deceit lead us astray. And I, in the last month, have realized I've believed some lies about myself. And the Lord has been shining a light into that because for so long, in my, for those of you, some of the people here have known me for over a decade. Praise God, I'm thankful for them. And I've always been very happy to serve others. And everybody's like, Keith, I see God's grace at work in your life and serving others and loving others in Jesus. And I've been told that a lot. And as I've been looking at my own motivations for service, some of that is the glory of God. Some of it is loving others. And some of it is the fact that I believe the lie that my worth, I'm worthless and all I should do is serve others because they're of worth more value than me. That I don't have value in myself. Well, let me tell you something. That's a lie. Christ didn't die for something with no value. Christ died to save sinners and to reconcile them to God. And that includes me. That means if Christ died for me, I have value. See, it's insidious. The lie that I don't have value, I let that lie motivate me to something good, but never dealt with the lie. And now I see decades, a decade later, I'm evaluating my own heart, my own mental and spiritual well-being, and realizing that this lie has over time consumed my heart in ways that are very unhealthy. It's consumed the way I interact with others. It's consumed the way I interact with my son and my wife. And you say, well, you're not making much, you know, make much of others. That's what the Bible says. Yes, the Bible says, love your spouse as yourself. If you don't love your spouse yourself, you're not gonna love your spouse well. It says, love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you don't love yourself well, you're not gonna love others well, right? The lie seems very humble, the lie seems very in line with scripture that, oh, I, others are worth more than me. I should focus on them. But if I'm not healthy in my own soul, it affects how that flows out to others. So that lie had led me astray. And funny enough, I was reading, an, reading something that the character basically gave his life to serving others to not deal with the trauma in his life. And as the character got counseling, I'm like, holy cow, this is me. Now, don't get me wrong, you should never get counseling from a fiction book, <laughs> period. Don't get counseling from fiction. But where you see things, be open enough to be like, okay, I could have some of that. And that was very helpful to me. It's helped me recognize my value. Now, once again, we want to have a healthy view of our own value. For me, I have to remember God's love for me in Christ means I do have value. And I have value because I'm made in the image of God. Right? And because of that, I want to love myself well and love others well. I want to love myself well in light of gospel, in light of the scripture, and love my wife well, and my son well, and my church well. Because I will love them infinitely better if the love is based on a truth rather than a lie. Right? So truth prevails. It's taken the Lord, and it will continue to take the Lord years of working in my heart to reveal all these lies and draw them out. But the Lord has been working to help the truth prevail in my heart. Now, last week, and for the previous month or so, Nick has been talking about uh, and preaching through Galatians 1 to 4. Um, we've been dealing with Paul's rebuke of the circumcision party. And good news, this is the last time, the last text where Paul confronts the circumcision party. 
we're not going to be talking about adding to the gospel as much as we're going to be talking about living out the gospel the next couple weeks after this. Little uh, spoilers ahead if you haven't read the book. Okay, I think we're past the due date on those spoilers to be warned about. Um, But we're going to look at this text in two ways. First, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 where Paul establishes for the final time the truth of the gospel, where he looks at the circumcision party and he looks at at the gospel of Jesus and says the gospel is true and this is false. And then we're going to look at how the gospel, then we're going to go ahead and look about how that lies deceive, but the truth prevails. Lies fight the truth, but the truth prevails in 7 through 12. So that's where we're going. So let's get started. Let's jump right in here. So Nick already preached 1 through through verse 1 in chapter 5. And Paul says here, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I'm not going to retread that. Nick did a great job. But we've been set free from sin to walk in freedom. Paul then goes to the Galatians. Remember, this is written to a people he knows, that he spent time with, that he loves. He says, look, pay attention. I, Paul, say to you, I'm telling you as clearly as possible, Paul says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. He says, if you do this, you're severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Paul uses the strongest language imaginable to the people he knows, who he loves, who he shared the gospel with, and says, if you pursue this, if you follow what these false teachers are selling, if you buy in, if you're a man and you're circumcised, if you choose to follow this, you're severing yourself from Christ. This false teaching will lead you astray. What does he say here? He says multiple times, Christ, he uses these like financial um, illustrations. He'll be no advantage, no value, no worth to you. Christ will have no advantage, no worth to you if you accept circumcision. He says again, not only that, but you have to obey the whole law. See, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He understood what the circumcision party was saying. They come in and say, hey, you just need to come right after Paul. They say, Paul preached the gospel. I'm here to give you 2.0. I'm here to give you the better gospel. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Once you do that, you're good with God. Paul knows, though, that's a false gospel, and it will lead you astray. Because once they got you a circumcision, then it's like, hey, now that you're circumcised, you have to keep the law. Paul knows that this is the reality. If you choose to follow in Judaism, you have to keep the law of the Jews. It's coherent. And that's what they were doing. They go through and argue, just add this, and then they give you all the law after that. So Paul says, if you do this, you have to keep the whole law. And the law, it puts you back under slavery. It separates you from God. And you are literally severed from Christ. You'll be justified by the law. And you've fallen away from grace. He's saying in as strong a language as possible, if you choose to go forward in this Galatians, you are walking away from Christ. You are rejecting him. Regardless if you think you're adding to the gospel, you have rejected Christ. You have severed yourself from him. 
and you've fallen away from God's grace. Guys, Paul's the one who teaches us if you're calling an election or sure, you're gonna persevere, right? Paul teaches that, but Paul is raw with the Galatians. He's very clear. If you pursue this false gospel, you never knew Jesus to begin with. You are severed. You have nothing to do with him. This is terrifying, but he's making it clear circumcision is not the gospel. Okay, well, this hasn't been a major problem in the American church, has it? Not often you have guys say, hey, I want to come preach at your church to preach the circumcision. Like, Israel, Israel was destroyed in 70 AD, 20 years after this was written. Circumcision party was driven away. This isn't a major part of the church history other than the first couple, cent- uh, first couple decades, Paul's time. This error was corrected. But where do our things we think are the gospel but aren't? What are things we are adding to the gospel? I'm going to frame this a different way. I want you to think about this. If you stood before God in heaven and you're standing before the pearly gates, however you envision them, and God says, why would I let you into heaven? What is your first thought? What is your first thought? Why should I let you into heaven? So, Lord, look at all the good I've done for you. I've preached your name. I've, I've visited people in prison. I've cared for widows and orphans. I've done great and mighty signs in your name. And he said, Jesus told us there will be people in the last days who will say that. And God will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. We think our works will save. They won't. Okay, fair enough. Works don't save us. We've heard that a thousand times this month, right? How about religious? God, God, I've sung all the worship songs. I've memorized them all in three languages. I've led worship. I've come to prayer meetings. I'm at church every time the doors are open, even if I'm the one opening them to come alone, just to spend time with you. I have taken all, I, I do Lent. I do, I do fasting twice a week. I give, a, I give a tenth of every little bit that I have, not just money, but even the vegetables in my garden. I give to the church. I do everything I can to be as religious as possible, Jesus told the Pharisees, that's not enough. It's not enough to be, to give perfect tenth of everything. Our religious acts themselves will not save us. They can't. Our religious actions can't make up for the, the depth of distance that exists between God and man because of our sin. Okay? Well, what about this? God, I'm a very good person. If you haven't heard this, you'll hear it eventually if you talk about Jesus with others. I'm a good person. I I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm faithful to my spouse. I I treat my kids well. I don't beat my dog. I stay off dirty websites. I'm a good person, God. I belong in heaven. I'm better than Hitler. (laughs) Really, do we really want to set our standard that low? I mean, when somebody tells you they're better than Hitler, it's like, what? What? Congratulations. No, that, that's, being a good person will not save us. Or, 
We can be like the rich young ruler and say, God, I've, I've followed all your commands. I've been faithful to everything. I've, I've given and I've loved my parents. I've honored my parents. I've worshiped God. I've, I've loved my neighbor as myself. I've served God. I've went on mission trips. I've, I've done everything you've commanded me to do in obedience. Everything. I know all the law. I know all the New Testament, Old Testament. I'm walking in perfect obedience. Moral living will not save us when we stand before God. And these are just a few illustrations. What are you seeking to do to be made right with God today? What are you seeking to do in your life to feel like God is happy with you today? What is it? Is it your devotion life? I'm really good with devotions. Is it your emotions? If I feel like God's happy with me, then I'm happy. And he has to be happy with me because I think I'm happy with me. You know, are our emotions what drive it? That seek us to make right with God? What are you looking to in order to be saved from your sin and make right with God? Because if we stand before God and he asks us that question, there's only one right answer, guys. And it's Jesus. That's it. Let's be frank. Let me be frank with you in a way that perhaps you haven't received before. If you're here right now, I'm talking directly to you. If you can see me, I may not be looking you in the eye, but I'm talking to you right now. Let's be frank. Your good works and your standing, and your, standing your position in the eyes of yourself and others, even elders, even church members, is worthless in saving you. Your church attendance and how others see you at church cannot save you. Your volunteering and participation in serving others and going to take the gospel other places cannot save you. Your grades do not save you. Your devotions each week do not make you holy in the sight of God. The only way you can be made right with God is through personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can save us is his righteousness given to us. See, here's the thing. Circumcision is not the gospel. That's what Paul is saying in verses two through four that circumcision keeps you from the grace of God. But then he goes on in verses five and six, so it says, through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by faith we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. The only hope we have when we stand before God is we plead the blood of Jesus Christ. We plead Salvation through Christ alone. Okay, we talk about the gospel a lot. And gospel means good news, right? It means that there's something good here and then it's news. But what does this mean? The gospel is the good news, I'm going to be very clear here, of the historical, real, true account of Jesus' incarnation, God becoming man and dwelling among us. His life his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. That is what the gospel is about. The gospel and Jesus himself do not give us room to say, hey, this is an option for you to pick. Jesus says, come to me and you will find life. Here's the reality. He calls us to trust in him for forgiveness of sins, and the hope of eternal life. Now I'm gonna say hope because Paul says hope. Most of you hear hope and you think, 
I mean, most of us, I won't even say you, because I'm totally here. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get an A. Like, I go to the, I go, this has been 20 years. Sorry for those of your students now. But I go to classes. We'd still have the little Scantron sheets. You might still have those now. And you'd you'd do it, and I like pray right before, you know, I'd study the day of. And I'd pray right beforehand and ask God to, to bless this mess, right? Lord, you're good, you're good, and you know what you need, and I really need you to solve this problem for me that I just made. (laughs) right? And we go to God, and we ask him, and then we really hope. We're like, Lord, I hope you'll answer that prayer, right? I made a mess of it. I wasn't faithful. You are. I really hope you'll take care of this. That's not hope. That's not hope. That's, that's, that's a wing in a prayer. Yeah, that, that's, that's a wing in a prayer. When Paul talks about hope, Paul talks about something very solid. Paul would say, I hope this pen doesn't fall on the ground when I let go right? The pen fell on the ground, right? We all knew it was going to fall on the ground. Like, Keith, that's objective reality. We live that. That's what Paul's saying here. We eagerly hope, um, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait with joyful anticipation, with expectation. This hope is a reality that God is faithful That's his hope. His hope is for something that is not yet fulfilled. That's what he's saying. I'm hoping for something I know is coming, and I'm eagerly awaiting it. When I was was getting married, the day I got married to my wife, everybody goes out of that room at some point, and the the groom is just kind of waiting to come out of the room to to get on the stage, and you're sitting there, I'm like, I hope I'm getting married today. You know, that wasn't a well, I hope nothing goes wrong, or, or I'm hoping, like, I hope I win the lottery. This was an eager expectation that I'll walk out that room, stand up there, and see my bride. That's what happened, right? It wasn't there yet. I was still waiting. It wasn't yet a reality, but it was going to happen. That's the kind of hope Paul is talking about. The eager expectation of the reality of what God has done for him will be applied to him. That's what he's eagerly awaiting in hope. So when you hear hope in Paul, hear steadfast confidence. Hear something deeper than this fickle American hope we have that I hope I'll get the job I want. I hope I'll win the lottery. I hope I'll live to be 120. That's that's fanciful wishing, not hope, not biblical hope. I say this because Paul is rooted in truth. As I said, the truths of the gospel that he talks about, about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection truly happened. Objectively, Jesus is a real person. Jesus claimed what the Bible says he claimed. His followers went out and died almost to a man because they believe what he claimed to teach. Jesus today, it's the Bible teaches, and we believe this at New City, is living today, ruling in heaven, and will come again to establish his kingdom. The reality about all of this is not only do we, we claim, the Bible claim, and we believe this to be true objectively, not opinion, not subjective truth, objectively true. Jesus makes claims that are exclusive, guys. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life that no one can come to the Father except through him. John 14. And he calls each of us to respond to him in repentance and faith. See, here's the thing. If the gospel is true, if this is gospel is true, and it is, 
It is objectively true. Jesus did this, and we have to confront that truth. We have to know how to respond. Because here's the thing. That's what Paul talks about here, guys. When he talks about, through, through, the, through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision works, counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul is talking about how we respond. He says, first, faith is a gift. It's through the Holy Spirit. God works in us to draw us to himself. But what does responding to him look like? There's a calling for all those who hear to come to Jesus to find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. For us to put our faith in him, to trust in his work on the cross for forgiveness and to follow him. But what does this faith look like? Because we can talk about faith just like we talk about hope, right? We can have very messed up and muddled views of these things. Faith is all of these, these four points I'm going to say here. Faith is belief in the truth of the gospel. If you don't believe Jesus really exists, you can't have faith in him. He's not a happy story. It's not. He's not a, a guru for self-help, and he's not a, a suffering teacher who is persecuted by the Romans. Jesus was killed because he claimed to be God and he could forgive sins. That's it. So first, faith looks like belief in the gospel, in the truths of the gospel. Second, faith means profession of that knowledge. Profession meaning professing, speaking the truth of this. Uh, Romans 10.9 says, if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, third, Faith is seen in our lives. Paul says here, it's not about circumcision or non-circumcision that counts, but only faith working through love. Faith is to be seen working through love in ourselves. Faith motivates good deeds. Faith is given to us, but faith itself is in a person. It's in Jesus. But that faith then motivates action because we've been saved and are now living out our new identity in Jesus. So faith is in the truth of the gospel. It's professing the good news of Jesus. It is seen in our lives as we live it out in love toward one another and good deeds and care. In this, Paul and James agree. Faith without works is dead. If your faith, I speak as one who had a real struggle with this, as a cerebral dude, um, if your faith is merely head knowledge, it's not faith. If your faith is merely, I know all the right truths, and I say them out loud, I share, a, Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. But if our faith is not transforming us, if our faith in Jesus is not causing us to live lives of love for others, care for others, because of who Jesus is, then it's still deficient. Faith is to be lived out. That's what Paul's showing here. Faith motivated, working through love. That's real faith. It's not circumcision. It's not uncircumcision. It's gift by the Spirit, and it's waiting for the hope of righteousness. Because here's the thing with the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Why is that good news? Well, it's because God is perfectly holy, and he cannot abide sin. So when a sinful man comes to God, there is an infinite gulf between God and man. When Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, that gulf was formed. 
And every generation and every person outside of Jesus has done the same thing, rebelled against God as soon as they could. Turned from God, said, I know better. I want to be God. And this gulf, we've tried to pass it with religiosity and works and deeds. We can't even get halfway across. We can't. Nothing we can do can separate it. But the good news is that God made a way before the world began, before any of us, anything was created, God already had a way for him, for us to be reconciled to him. Even though we would sin, he chose to take that infinite gulf between a sinful man and a holy God and for Jesus to hang on the cross in that gulf, for his blood to be shed for us, that we would be reconciled to God, brought back together through faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting in him, believing in him, professing him, living for him because of his work in our hearts. That's the good news of the gospel. Though we were separated from God and could do nothing. Paul says we are at enmity with God. When Paul says enmity, he means active hostility, right? It was, it was I, I hate to use this term, it was God and us, and we were at war against him. We wanted to rule and reign ourselves. While we were those enemies, Christ died on the cross for us. That's when God's, that's God's love is beautiful and the gospel is beautiful because we didn't deserve it. We were enemies. He chose to love us and save us. So the gospel is good news. So Paul says, here's circumcision and here's the true gospel. Choose the true gospel. And Paul goes on and looks at how lies fight the truth, but the truth prevails. He says in verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Right? Paul points out these Galatians, he was with, right? He's like, you started the race. You start, and Paul oftentimes using running metaphors. I don't do a lot of running, but I did in high school. And I was a cross-country runner. It was really bad. I did it for wrestling. So it was just keeping my cardio up. But uh, you're running a race. You've got to keep a pace. You've got to keep running the race in such a way to win. If you quit halfway through, you're not going to win. You're not going to finish. Paul uses these metaphors of marathons and races because he wants the people to run the race of faith throughout their life until the Lord takes them home. It's not something you give up on. It's not something you quit on. It's something you run harder as you get closer to the finish line. And he says, what hindered you? Why did you start running poorly? Now, it's a, it's a, Hypothetical question. They already know the answer. He's already spent multiple chapters giving them the answer. The circumcision party came, has led you astray. They've given you lies that have started you not, that have helped, that have caused you to not run well. You've begun to believe a lie. And Paul has spent chapters giving them truth to fight that lie. New city. We don't have the circumcision party. But why? Did you start running poorly? Why did I start running poorly? There's times in our life where we're on fire for God. We love him and we're pursuing him. There's times in our life where like, I don't know if I even want to go to church. I don't know if I even want to read the Bible. I don't even know if I even believe this anymore. There's a trajectory there. You just don't go one day and go, I love Jesus, honestly from your heart. And the next day go, nope, I'm done with him. There's a trajectory that happens. We start believing something that draws us away. What is causing you? What is leading you astray from the truth of the gospel? What's keep, or to use Paul's phrase, what's keeping you from running well? 
Is it a habit? I'm not talking sin here yet. Habits. Oh, I really, really just love to catch up on, forgive me, I've heard a lot about The Mandalorian today. I haven't seen it. But I just love to catch up on my favorite shows, and once they drop, I binge them for the whole week, and nothing else happens that week. So I just binge The Mandalorian for, for whatever episodes there are. Let's say 12 hours, and nothing else happened, and I'm really excited about Star Wars and what's going to happen next. The day before you're professing Jesus to your friends, the next day you're like, but Star Wars is so awesome, guys. Like things that aren't evil, that aren't sinful, can lead us astray when they take our hearts. Or an addiction. You know what? Let's be honest. I'm addicted to my phone. I can so easily be addicted to clicks, whether that's a game or a movie or a TV or, a, or an article. Even like a Gospel Coalition or Desiring God article, right? I'm like, hey, there it is. I don't have time to read my Bible, but I read 47 articles about the Bible. What? I don't need other people to do my chewing for me. I need to chew the word of God myself. Yes, I am a sparrow, but I'm an adult. We don't need anybody chewing our food for us. Sorry, for those of you who know birds, that's funny. Um, Thank you. What is distracting us? What is keeping us? What are habits that keep us from running well? Or in this case with the Galatians, what lies are we believing? As I said earlier, one of the lies I've believed for years is that I'm not, I don't have value. I don't have worth compared to everybody else. And that's hindered me from running well. That's kept me in so many ways in my life from walking in freedom with Jesus. Instead being enslaved to to beautiful things, caring for others, serving others, serving the church, right? But from the wrong motivation in my heart, right? That lie bound me to service instead of freeing me to serve. Is it a lie about yourself like me? Is it a lie about the gospel? Is the gospel something that is not beautiful because you believe a lie about it? Or that you're removing, adding or removing something from it. You know, if the gospel, you're like, well, I don't really love Jesus. I don't, I feel like, yeah, if I'm saved, it's over with. You've removed obedience from the gospel. The gospel calls us to believe. It also calls us to obey. Or is it a lie you're believing about others? I don't need the church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't, they don't, they don't love Jesus. I'll just do this on my own. What's keeping you from running well? Where is your love growing cold? My friends, Jesus is worth our lives. He is worth us living differently, sacrificing, caring, giving up all that we have for his gospel to be made known and for lives to be changed. I want us to see that because New City Sendings are scorecards. So many of you who are here right now are going to go out from here as you graduate to other cities and other churches and other places. And we want to form in you disciples who make an impact for the good news of the gospel wherever you go. Some of you will go on, will become church planning teams or missionaries like Shelby and Sergio. Some of you will just be faithful Christians who love Jesus, who go to another church and love Jesus. And that'll be a blessing to that church. That's our scorecard, guys. We send. And we want you to know and believe and live and love as though Jesus is worth all of our lives. 
We're getting to the end here. It'll be a few more minutes, but we're almost there. Uh, Paul goes on, this persuasion, this falsehood that's keeping you from obeying the truth is not from him who calls you. He's kind of playing the play on words there. God's calling and election are sure. He points out once again, he who elected you, he who called you to follow him, these lies are not from him. He says instead, um, and he reminds them of their identity and calls them to run the race. So he's used all these different metaphors, right? He's used like financial metaphors. He talks about running. He talks about God's calling. And he says, he drops this, a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump. For those of you who aren't bakers, you put leaven, yeast is what he's talking about, into bread and you mix it up and it causes the bread to rise and give all the little bubbles in your bread that makes sandwich bread really soft and delicious. Um, but it was very clear in throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, that leaven spreads. And he's saying that uh, a little falsehood spreads and leads the church astray, keeps people from running well. And it's a warning to the church and to us to the Galatians, a little false teaching. The, the, the circumcision party coming in had led them astray, was leading them astray, was, was tempting them to walk away from Christ, right? And it's a warning to us that false teaching will cost us because a little false teaching, hey, check out this YouTube video I heard. I really like it. It's cool. The guy's dynamic. He preaches so much better than Keith probably does, absolutely. Um, but is he preaching you the truth? Is he giving you, is he delivering the mail? Um, a little false teaching can affect the entire church. And when it adds to the gospel or subtracts from it, it's no longer the gospel. So here's what I want to encourage you. How do we know when there's leaven? We study the scriptures ourselves. Don't just trust Nick and I because we're elders and we stand up here on Sunday. Look at the Bible yourself. Read the text if what we're saying is coherent with the text, leave it and walk in it. If we're saying is our opinion, throw it out. I don't care if you like the same sports teams I do or the same computers I do. That doesn't matter. I'm not going to talk about it up here. I want you to know and love Jesus. That's what he calls you to do. That's what Nick wants for you. We want you to know and love Jesus. And hey, let's go out from us. Don't believe what any authority on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok tells you because, hey, I got, I got this text from Exodus 50, Revelation uh, 40, and, uh, you know, John 28, and these texts say this. You know, what's, you know what the problem is with that? None of those chapters exist. Do your own study. Do your own homework. Don't just trust people because they have a good and slick platform. Read the Word look at the context and see what's actually being taught. Because false teaching, if embraced, will lead us away from the gospel. Let's just ask this, what small lie do we embrace now that we need to deal with before it leavens the whole loaf? The reality is, most of us don't know. I didn't know for years. My own small lie that I shared earlier. We don't know because it's a lie that we believed. But here's the thing, we have a God who answers prayer. He promised if we ask for wisdom, he'll give it. So just ask, prayerfully ask God, where am I believing a lie that's keeping me from walking with you? Here's the amazing thing Paul does next, right? He just told them, if you follow circumcision, you're cut off from God, separated. Christ is no advantage to you, right? In, chapter, in verse four, what does he say here? You were running well, what hindered you? 
I have confidence in the Lord. You will take no other view than the one who is, no other view than the one I do and the one who is troubling you. Um, sorry, no other view than the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul's basically saying, I've just written you a letter calling you to walk in the gospel. I have confidence in the Lord, not in you, but in the Lord that you will walk in the truth. Paul's confidence is he trusts in the Lord that they have been called and they will persevere, that lies may come for a time, that they may fight the truth, but the truth will prevail. Paul has confidence in the Lord. They'll respond well to his letter. He trusts in the Lord. They'll persevere in their faith. He knows these people, loves these people, and he trusts God with their souls. That's the confidence he has here is that though the lie may come for a time, the truth will prevail. But then he answers the last question that the circumcision party had been throwing at him. He says, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul asked that question because the circumcision party didn't inherently go, Paul's wrong, let's teach you right. No, they, they said, you know, Paul's got it. We're just adding a little bit to it. We're giving you the rest of the story right? They said, Paul teaches, Paul, you know, Paul, he had Timothy circumcised. He believes in this stuff, right? Well, he didn't have Titus. They would come behind him and argue this. And he just says, why are they persecuting me? Why are they tracking? Why are they stoning me in towns, beating me in other towns? Why are they coming up behind me to argue that they just have to add to the gospel if I'm preaching what they're preaching? His point is, I'm not preaching what they're preaching, and they're not preaching what I am. He says, if I'm preaching circumcision, if I'm preaching that man's works make them right with God, the offense of the Christ has been removed. The offense is, to the Jews, the Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who's hung upon a tree. So when they hear that Jesus died on the cross, on a tree, in a lumber, for the forgiveness of sins, it's offensive. And they say, we're okay if you do this, circumcise, because then you're a part of the people of God. We'll let you add that, Jesus, to that. But that removes the offense of Christ. He didn't preach the circumcision. He preached that Christ took the curse of God, becoming a curse in our place, taking the curse we deserve, and dying for us on the cross. And finally, he uses the strongest language possible to tell you what he thinks of these false teachers. And I don't want to be crass about it, but he says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Basically, what he's saying is, these people are trying to cut you off from Christ. These false teachers are trying to cut you off from salvation in order to make you praise them and look at them like they're something special. But I want you to know, I want them to cut themselves off the people of Israel, because these were Jews. And if they were to do this, they would no longer be able to enter the temple. They would be separated from the covenant people of God. He's, he, he is saying here, these false teachers want to separate you from being a person who is with Christ, being a part of the people of God. I wish that they would separate themselves. This is strong language. And what he's saying is, false teachers who lead people astray I wish that they would be done. They would not do this. They would not lead people astray. They would not cause people to stumble in the faith. There's strong words on false teaching. Let's make sure that when we teach others, we teach the truth.
we te- we, in humility and grace. So this is the end of Paul's talking about the circumcision party. He has confronted the lies again and again and again. He sums it up and says, what you need is the gospel. Not God plus anything else. What you need is Jesus Christ and faith in him. Paul has put his final argument down um, against these false teachers. He's made it clear to add circumcision to the gospel causes you to lose the gospel itself. In our lives, we can be tempted to add to the the, the gospel just as the false teachers were. We can also be tempted to remove from the gospel. And his warning to them is the same to us, is to compromise the gospel is to lose it. I'm going to give you a couple points, just a couple points of application. I'm not going to go long here. I know I probably already have. I just want to ask for each of us, as we move into a time of reflection in just a moment, what are you adding? Just prayerfully ask God, what am I adding or subtracting from the gospel? Is it works that we're adding? Is it religious performance? Is it what people think about us at church? Are we adding that to the gospel? Or what are we subtracting? Are we subtracting obedience? Are we subtracting the parts of the scripture that feel uncomfortable in our day and age? Are we subtracting the exclusive, 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 the sole way of being saved through Jesus? Thank you. That's the first question. What are you adding or subtracting from the gospel? Second, what lies? Ask God, Lord, if I'm believing a lie about you or myself or others, help me to know it. What lies are you believing that you need to turn from? And where do we go from here? Let's pray that the Lord would help us, our faith to work itself out through love to one another because all that God has done for us in Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us that while we were sinners, while we were your enemies, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And rarely would somebody die for a good person, but Christ chose to die for sinners, the holy for the unholy, the son of God for enemies of God, that we would be reconciled to you. Lord, thank you that I I pray that you give all those who hear this the gift of faith. Lord, I pray that we would believe the gospel, love the gospel, live the gospel, that your truth would prevail in our hearts and minds. Lord, please, I pray right now that you'd reveal to each of us those lies in our hearts and minds that we need to deal with, those lies about, about your worth, those lies about our worth. Whatever it may be, Lord, please work in the hearts of all those who can hear me today. Lord, be glorified. Help us to run the race well, that when we all cross that finish line or in heaven or Christ returns, we can look to one another and say, brother, you made it. Brother, we made it together. For we are a church, we are a body. We don't run this race alone. Help us, Lord, to encourage and help one another to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. At New City, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We don't want to just hear the Bible and say, hey, that's a great message. We want to be doers of the word also. 
And we do this in three ways every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. And we're going to do it again today. As I get done here, as I step down, we're going to take a couple minutes to reflect on what we heard. To prayerfully ask God, um, where do I need to believe the truth today? Where do I need to lay down a sin or a habit that's keeping me from running the race of faith? What lie do I need to remove from my life before it destroys my entire life? After we reflect for a minute or two, we'll come up and we'll take the Lord's Supper. We do this every Sunday at New City because in the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ's death upon the cross until he comes again. We take the cup and wafer and remember that all that Christ has done for us. The Lord's Supper is for all those who profess Christ, Christ in faith. I would encourage you, as the scripture does, that if you have conflict, if you need to reconcile yourself before you take the Lord's Supper with someone else, do that. This is the time to do that. Prayerfully step aside with them and confess sin, ask forgiveness, seek reconciliation. If there's forgiveness or if there's anger or bitterness in our hearts, let us lay them down to Christ. Remember all he has done for us, for those who've been forgiven much can forgive much. And we are a people who've been forgiven. And then we take the Lord's Supper. And finally, after the Lord's Supper, the band is going to come up. And we're going to rehearse. We're going to have, as Nick says, a dress rehearsal for heaven. The good news here, here, guys, we're going to sing praises to God loud and joyfully because God loves us and saves us and calls us himself, to himself, calls us his own. This dress rehearsal that we're going to do together is not just for musicians. This is good news because if you've heard me, I'm not one. The Bible says make a joyful noise to the Lord. So I want to encourage all of you to sing. If you're like, man, you don't know how I sing, you can come stand next to me. Please do. I'll probably throw off your rhythm, but we'll, have, we'll make a joyful noise together. So what we're going to do now is we're going to bow our heads and reflect, and then, re then rehearse, then respond, and worship. Let's bow our heads.